I remember that day like it was 10 years ago. My spouse and I had just finished our post-wedding vacation. I believe the popular parlance is honeymoon. And we were about to find out how well we would deal with stressful uncertainty and chaos together. We were returning from the island of Jamaica. And island time appeared to have applied to airline travel as well. Our, Our quick jump over the water to Miami was a couple hours late. And our small window of time to board our next flight for home was now even smaller. Also of importance, it was an international exchange. And let us not forget another essential detail. We were also quite hungry. By the time passports were checked and customs were crossed, we found that our flight home had already boarded. Being new to the Miami airport, which was under immense construction, by the way, we were thrown into further panic when we found out that our already boarded flight was on the other side of the airport. We had no choice but to trade in our hunger pains for the rush of adrenaline. Is it, dear listener, acceptable to run through an airport? I don't know. However, despite the strange looks we received as newlyweds scampering through terminals, we elected to mindlessly sprint. As we neared the central hub of the airport, you know, full of terrible food that was smelling quite delicious, we heard a last call come over the speakers. We forged ahead, finally coming to our section of departure, only to see that our gate was the furthest away at the end of this massive room. Have you ever walked on the tarmac of an airport in order to board your plane? Me neither. I have, however, run across one with luggage in hand as the portable stairs were pushed in place just in time for us to climb into the aircraft. But that all started with us hastily approaching the desk of our flight's gate, out of breath, showing our tickets, there were still physical tickets back then, only in the have the very kind flight attendants tell us that we were too late. I quickly entered into an explanation of our predicament, including the details that we were newly married college students and we didn't know what we would do if we didn't get on that plane. And the flight attendant went into a rush of typing, a scene reminiscent of Meet the Parents. Suddenly, I swear I heard the Mission Impossible theme song begin as she picked up a phone, barked some commands, and then looked at us in all sincerity and said, follow me. The normal tunnel was skipped, we stepped out to a a door behind the desk, went down this labyrinth of stairs and onto the tarmac, and the portable stairs were just being pushed to the plane, the door open, and we got in and sat in the seats of our flight that had almost left without us. Airplane almonds never tasted so good. But as I said, it's a story I remember. Welcome, friends, as we embark on another episode of the Becoming Human podcast, a show dedicated to uncovering tools to help us live in the best way possible. My name is Tyler Kleberger, and I am not, I repeat, I am not an expert in much, but I am determined to understand the world as much as possible. So I see it as my responsibility, one that I've given myself, of course, take the little knowledge I have and facilitate this journey of discovering the world and how to live in it. I also write a lot. You can find all of that at tylerkleberger.com. And if you're willing, please feel free to share any of this stuff. I, I really don't like the self-advertising process that is 
pretty necessary to be successful in the content creation world, I'm banking on world, word of mouth. So if you know someone who may enjoy this process or this content, you know, tell them about it or something. But also, listen, I don't enjoy doing what I'm about to do. But if you find this valuable and you want to support it, I do try to make this a means of financial sustainability for myself and my family. There's a platform called Coffee that I use. It's like Patreon, except you can just give a one-time tip or you can do monthly support. Anything you are willing to do honors my soul. Thank you for those of you who support the show. You can find that at ko-fi.com slash becoming human. Anyways, the story I told. It's fun to look back on memories, isn't it? There's something about the nostalgia and the reflection where we are wrapping our minds around what brought us to the present moment. In last episode, I, I briefly described how memory works and why it is an important component of trying to make changes, of taking ideas and executing them in reality. And what I hope you gleaned was that memory is a bit complicated. And when we are talking about memories and stories in the past, there is a different issue than what we saw with ideation and execution. Because when you remember something, these stories that we recall and reflect on It is almost always a splintered version of the reality you are trying to consider. Our memories are malleable. They are finicky. At the same time, whoever you are is dependent on being able to remember things, to glean experiences and information from the world, and build something with it. Wherever we go, we bring with us the conglomeration of the past into the present, but only through how and what we remember from the past. Whoever you are becoming as a human being, memory is an integral tool to your journey. So you might be someone who says, I just don't have a good memory. Or maybe you are someone who wants to learn and grow and connect dots from the past to create a present that builds a certain future. Maybe you love to learn and want to get better at storing information. Maybe you find yourself struggling to retain certain details or maybe you are just fascinated by how the amazing thing that is our brain still has all of these slight issues that just make life a bit more problematic. Well, that's why I want to talk about this, the the science of, no, the art of memory. How do we remember stuff? And why do we forget other stuff? That's what we're going to explore today. So let's get into it. Let's learn, let's grow, and let's get better at remembering things. Here's what I want to say up front. That story I told of boarding the plane in Miami, the story, the memory, it isn't the event itself. Because whatever details I have preserved in my mental capacity are almost certainly not the exact replica of what actually happened. A lot of our time conversing with other humans is spent, you know, catching them up on things that happened that they were not a part of. We are storytellers by trade. We are sharing our experience so that the other person has more information about who we are, where we've been, and what has conglomerated to our being in the present. And much of this is mundane. You know, how's your week been? What have you been up to? These basic conversation starters are a means of sharing memory. And so a lot of our time in the present is spent recalling events and images and sentiments and feelings about something that has happened in the past. 
But what you tell about the past is not the past itself. It's how you remember the past. The story of what happened is not what actually happened. It's what you remember about what happened, and there's a difference. And I know I bring this up a lot, but it's such an important concept in examining our lives. Phenomenology, that your cognitive understanding of the world is based on how you have experienced the world. And here's where this gets tricky. And this deals with anything you know, whether we're talking about events or conflict or a book you read or something you've studied. When you experience the thing or learn the thing, you only have access to what you experienced or learned from your point of view. I've used this example before, but if you were to stand outside your home, you cannot experience every part of your home all at once. In the singularity of a specific moment in time, you only have access to what your eyes can see. So you can see one angle on your home, but there are other angles. You could see a bird's eye view of your home. You, you can take all of these other views of your home, but each one, though offering a unique perspective, can't include every single angle of the whole thing because your perspective is limited and finite. And beyond just the structure, you have all these other components to your home, the history of it, the people who lived there before, the people who occupy it now, and their connection or feelings or stories. There are memories of the home and future dreams of the home. And in any one moment, you can't capture all those components. Or think of a photograph. A photograph is a good illustration for how memory works. You can be in a certain space and time and look around and see all sorts of stuff. 360 degrees of stuff with all the layers of the human experience. The human inclination is to capture that moment, right? So we take a picture. The problem with a picture is that it can't include things like feelings or smells or sounds or the energy of a moment. You can manipulate the picture to include more or you compare it with other devices, maybe a video camera and it captures more senses. But the sensory experience and the fullness of a present moment is not a static thing and you can't capture all of it. Once it's over, it is over. A picture can help recall it, but it can never replicate the moment. You also only have that one angle. There's actually philosophers and psychologists who say that you shouldn't take pictures because of this. A lot of people take pictures because they're trying to capture moments, but in the end, a picture only offers one very specific angle of a moment in your mind. Your mind is always going to recall that moment better than a photograph is capable of. Because in the moment, you know, there's the 360 degrees and all these sensory modes of comprehension. There's a ton of information that can't be captured in a picture or a video. Well, your memory functions the same way. Your specific experience is all you have when you try to remember something. You're never going to recall every facet of an experience because you only have to work with what your limited perspective could glean in that moment. And this is why the stories we tell and the memories we have cannot be equated with the event itself, which needs to be taken into account whenever you or someone else is just you know telling it like it is or just passing on what happened. The facts on the ground. Well, the facts on the ground are never just the facts. They're, they're some of the facts, but they're also partial to what you have access to, which is never everything. 
You're not just telling it like it is. You're telling it like you know it, which is a truncated version of what it is and highly dependent on the limited components you experience. And all this brings us to another problem. It's also dependent on your ability to recall and communicate those limited components. Not only is your memory constrained by your limited perspective, it isn't all that great at replicating them. The stories we tell and the stories we hear are not artifacts of history. They are products of memory. And memory is different from reality. Part of this is because memory is not in search of a factual description of the totality of some moment or event. Not that we could capture that anyway. Memory is a search for meaning. What we need to be honest about is that events or moments or information, they never happen the way that they, we say that they did. Now, I'm not saying that we are all liars or that we are intentionally attempting some sort of like mental theft whenever we recall information or tell a story. No moral judgment here. This is just a basic description of how memory works. Here's what I mean. Encoding every detail of a memory simply isn't possible. Recalling every detail of something we experienced or know, it's beyond our mental capacity. There's a quote I love. The finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. Whether it is memories or pictures or any kind of recall, that's us pointing at the moon, which isn't the moon itself. It needs to be taken with a grain of salt. The story of my airport experience 10 years ago is not the same thing as my actual experiences of running through terminals and jumping into a plane. Lots of components of that reality were left out, if only because I didn't fully experience and encode all of them. And I also only focused on certain things because I'm recalling the meaning of the event, not the event itself. Our memories are not historians, they are storytellers. And there's a big difference. One that, if, if we can understand it and be honest about it, will help us tell better stories and, quite frankly, have better memories. Now, if you're like me, you also realize another problem with memory. Beyond its limitations and its inaccuracy and details, a problem of, of when we remember something, we also don't tend to be so good at it. You can meet a person, can't remember their name, or you forget an address or location. I have lots of these experiences where I go, oh, I, I need to tell so-and-so about that. But then I either forget to tell them completely, or when I go to pass on the basic information, I, I can't remember all the details. You know, And I'd like to think that I have a pretty good memory, but I can't tell you how often I'm in a situation and I get this puzzled look on my face while the other person is just staring at me and I can only say, there was something I was going to tell you or ask you, and I forgot. Remembering and forgetting. We spend a lot of time trapped between those two realities of life, don't we? And there's a reason why. It all comes down to how our memories work in the first place. And if you want to be better at remembering things, whether it's data or information or stories or tasks, it will best happen by knowing the basics of how memory works in the brain. I, I know there's lots of techniques for memory and recall. Some of them are good. Some of them are terrible. There are just ways to get you to buy a product or curriculum or something. 
But at its core, all of this comes down to understanding two basic questions. First, why do we remember some things and forget others? And second, why do we remember some things briefly, but then lose them over time? So we need to start here. And then, yes, we need to get into what we do about this other complication of being limited, finite, phenomenological beings who can't completely replicate the experience of a moment. But what do we know about how memory in the brain works that can help us be more intentional with how we learn, intake, and recall information? All of that stuff is there somewhere. But how we initially interact with it and how we store it, that's going to determine how well we remember it. So let's talk about the science of memory. And a quick warning, this could get real boring real quick. So a disclaimer up front, if you get bored with me rambling on about the different types of memory and you're going, yeah, I don't, I don't know about all that. It'd, it'd be better if I could just see it. Well, good news. I've written about this before, and I agree it's easier to see this laid out. Um, and just there's different approaches to learning, right? So using different senses are, are actually an important part of encoding. Uh, so that's on the website if you're interested in that. But that being said, let's talk about this, the, the brain's process of memory. And, and it's quite complex. It involves several different forms of memory. And understanding these forms, you know, this is the key to unlocking how information stays in the brain and can be recalled. So, first form of memory. It's called sensory memory. Now, it's helpful, maybe even encouraging, to understand that you are technically learning things constantly. You are a, a, a life learner. And, and this is the case because you are experiencing things constantly. Now, you have a lot of agency for what you are constantly learning based on how intentionally or, or unintentionally you put yourself around certain things or experiences. And this is the basis of like creativity and curiosity. What you expose yourself to will determine what you take in. Um, but even sometimes, you know, it's the random unexpected moments that shape us the most. I just think it's reassuring, you know, that you're constantly learning. That's, that's good news among all of these problems we've been talking about. Learning doesn't just happen when you sit down to read something. Every moment, you're taking in information. You are, by default, a student of the game of life. Hooray. Now for the bad news. You remember very little of this information. This is called sensory memory, and it is quite literally anything that your senses take in during a given moment, right? When you feel the touch of your phone, uh, the, the olfactory information you bring in with each breath, the colors or objects you see from light refracting in a certain way, the sounds and tastes that are constantly present, each and every single sensory experience is something that you take in and is technically a part of your memory. Your brain is constantly engaging with the world and it's at work. And this is why sleeping is the only true rest. Deep sleep is the only time you are not actively taking in sensory memory. Your, your memory is doing something else during this, but that's, that's a whole other episode. But when we are talking about the different forms of memory, you know, this is important to understand. And, and this comes down to, you're going to see this with each form. There's two components that differentiate all three forms. Um, and it's capacity and duration. 
So capacity being how much that form of memory can store, duration, how long can it store it. Uh, sensory memory, most of these pieces don't last very long. It has a very short duration. Now, what's interesting is the capacity of sensory memory is infinite. You know, there's no end to what your senses can experience in a given moment. The problem is that the duration of sensory memory is about one second. So the smells and tastes and glimpses of your eyes, they don't stick around in your brain very long by default. Um, and this isn't just about physical senses. It's anything that you're experiencing. Sensory memory deals with any information that you initially take in, right? So learning someone's name, trying to memorize content, reading a book, all of the information we have starts as sensory memory, even the most important information, right? It's taken in as sensory memory in the blip of a second. You're constantly putting the like infinitely large amounts of content into your brain's memory bank. But most of them, even the really important stuff, they're only guaranteed briefly and they're often gone immediately. So how, how do we keep the sensory information going? Well, that brings us to short-term memory. Uh, a metaphor that helps me track with all of this is that memory is like construction. Okay, so you're, you're processing sensory information. That's like grabbing a tool that you have around you. You're experiencing it. You're taking it in. When you want to move that information into short-term memory, it's like placing that tool on your workbench so you can use it. So your sensory memory gleaned the tool. Your short-term memory is when you put it in front of you and use it. But when you decide in any moment to focus on particular information, you are encoding sensory memory to short-term memory. So you're listening to this podcast right now. Your sensory memory has heard and taken in every word and sound that you've made yourself accessible to. Even if you weren't paying attention, even if you currently aren't paying attention, you may also have a dryness in your mouth or, or you're smelling the odor permeating the space you're in or you're surrounded by various colors. But a lot of this information is happening subconsciously. Even, even the sounds and the audio, you press play to this, but even those sounds can be entering the sensory memory and fleeing just as quickly if you aren't paying attention to them if they're not captivating your mental space. So these tools, these pieces of information, they're there, but it doesn't mean you're storing them yet. Remember, you got about one second with those. However, when something does captivate your attention, when it starts taking up room in your conscious thoughts, that intentional focus is what moves the content from sensory experience to short-term memory. And this is called encoding. Encoding is the intentional conscious recognition of a sensory experience that brings that information to your attention. Slight problem, though. It's still called short-term memory. The conscious process, you know, it, it elevates the information from your quickly evaporating sensory memory, but it's still quite short, about 30 seconds. Now, that's a huge increase in margin by percentage, but it's still pretty brief. So you can hear a name and not really pay attention to it, and it's gone. 
But if you hear the name and you focus on it, now you've got it for about 30 seconds. Good deal. Uh, which, by the way, when someone talks about being present or, or truly listening, they're actually talking about this encoding process. right? You can be somewhere and not really be there because you aren't paying attention. You're just letting everything be sensory. But when you don't just hear, you actually listen, or when you're fully there in a space, it's because you have consciously encoded what's going on. It's, it's not magic. It's literally a physiological process. But there's another problem with short-term memory. It's not only really limited in duration, it's also really limited in capacity. So the amount of tools you can grab, it's confined to a pretty small workbench. Now, by giving explicit attention to the sensory information, you know, you're you're ensuring that the information is not going to disappear instantly, but you also lose that infinite capacity of sensory memory for a much more constrained storage bank. Your your short-term memory can only hold about seven chunks of information, give or take a couple. Um, Typically, we are only capable of holding on to about five to nine chunks of information. And I know chunks is incredibly ambiguous. You know, love to have something more, more stable there. But think of a phone number, okay? Back back when we actually had to memorize phone numbers, when when they added the area code to a phone number in the United States, it was like they were guaranteeing that we wouldn't remember them, because the traditional phone number in the United States it was seven digits long, okay? So each digit could be its own chunk. Short term memory can handle that. Now. If you want to remember a phone number that is 10 digits long, you know, with the area code, you have to chunk a couple digits together. So instead of remembering 419-867-5309, which uh, is actually an example of creating a whole chunk out of Jenny's phone number, 8675309, that's an encoding process that culture gave us. Thank you. But instead of memorizing each digit, you could say, 419 and area codes often become a chunk for us. 86, 75, 309. And now you have six chunks and short-term memory can work with that. So that's an example of how chunks work. But that's also, that's the limit of your conscious work. Right, You only have about 30 seconds before that information, just like sensory information, is going to dissolve. But here's the thing. You, I assume remember more than five to nine chunks of information, right? There must be a more permanent level of memory then. And I'm glad you asked. Well, well, technically, I asked. Uh, But hopefully you were wondering about that as well. And good news, there is. It's called long-term memory. And these people were real creative with these names, weren't they? Uh, Long-term memory, just like sensory memory, is infinite in capacity, Awesome. And it gets better. Long-term memory is also capable of being infinite in duration. So you take the information from your sensory memory, you place it in short-term storage with those five to nine chunks through some sort of conscious encoding process. But then you have to transfer that information into permanent storage. You take the tool, you put it on your workbench, but then you add to your toolbox. And now you have access to that forever and you can store as many tools as you want in your toolbox. It sounds great, 
but you're probably guessing, despite all that good news, this has to be a very difficult process. Transferring information to long-term memory is, because it requires a much more complicated, focused style of encoding. For short-term encoding, you just have to pay attention. You just have to think about it. For long-term, it's way more difficult. And the rewards are also way higher, but it takes an equally high amount of effort. Somehow you have to create an association or attach significant meaning to the content in order to store it permanently. And I mentioned, you know, there's all these techniques for recall and memorization. And this long-term encoding, this is the process they're talking about. And what's interesting is that there are there are actually two different kinds of long-term memory. Um, so first, you have what's called explicit long-term memory. And this is the information that, you know, it's abstract ideas and processes that they're not necessarily natural to survival, but we still remember them. Um, and there's two forms of, of explicit long-term memory. There's semantic explicit long-term memory. Um, and this is like facts or words or cognitive information. So if you have a quote memorized or statistics or phone number, um, for example, this is your semantic explicit long-term memory. There's also episodic explicit long-term memory, and these are episodes, pictures, story details, images that are kind of ingrained into your consciousness. The other form of long-term memory is called implicit long-term memory. Um, and this is any piece of information that is automatic. It's part of how you live and, and move and have your being in the world. Anything that doesn't require intentional recall, but is kind of naturally recalled. Um, again, there's two forms of this. And I know this like, oh, these are a lot of words. You already know this. You already realize this is the thing. People just came up with names for them. But the first is automatic implicit long-term memory. Um, so these are like the procedures, the functions that you learn, but you don't have to even think about it anymore. It's walking, breathing. Fortunately, our bodies are pretty good at moving this from sensory to short-term to long-term pretty quickly. Uh, so we figure that out. Then there's also conditioned implicit long-term memory. And these are procedures or functions that you made into muscle memory. Okay, so when we're talking about like, I want to learn things better. Well, that's semantic uh, explicit long-term memory. So you'd want to focus on that or, uh, you're not good with like pictures and images and, uh, whole visions of stories or things. Okay. Well, that's, that's episodic long-term memory, uh, in the explicit form. Um, but when a lot of people are talking about like making changes and building habits, they're talking about this form, the conditioned implicit long-term memory. This is the myelin sheath process that we talked about last episode, where the coding on your neurons gets stronger so it can pass the signal along to your brain faster. And so what's happening with these is you're literally conditioning the actions and processes into your memory. This can also be really unhealthy. Like you can make bad habits innate, like addictions or obsessive compulsions. Some of these are not necessarily natural to the human condition either. Uh, this weird, I, I have this weird bedtime routine that I like, I just have to do now because what started as a reactive response to a situation 
It became conditioned over time, and now it's a part of my implicit long-term memory. It, it's weird how all this works, but this is also why changing behavior is so difficult. You know, you're trying to rewire your brain. So last episode, when we talked about the necessity of memory and experience and conditioning using your external environment, well, that's why, because it's dealing with how your memory works. But that that's everything on the types of memory, okay? So you got sensory, you got short-term, you got long-term. You got two kinds of, uh, of long-term, explicit and implicit, each of which have their own two. I know that's a lot. And if you're still listening to this, which I mean like, actually listening, not just hearing my boring voice take up background noise in your sensory memory, I'm assuming that you are curious as to how we can encode information into a long-term memory. And there are actually seven processes, seven methods. Do you want to know what they are? Well, keep listening. Or again, I've got these all listed out in an article on memory on my website, so you can just skip the rest of this. But these are really interesting to think about. So encoding. This is the whole goal. Whole goal of memory is getting things into our long term. Um, and we still have that problem of our perspective being limited and our memories not being, you know, a replication of the thing itself. The finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. But learning, memorizing, or, or internalizing any style of information it's all about encoding that information into the long-term storage bin of your brain. You take it from sensory memory to short-term, pretty simple, just pay attention. But a lot of information stays short-term and dissipates because long-term encoding is so difficult. And, and, and it also has to be kept up. You might remember that uh, you know name or phone number or fact you, you've, or you started a habit, right? But unless the encoding continues, it's going to decay. Long-term memory is only infinite in capacity and duration if you keep at it. Um, and there's actually something called encoding failure. And this is usually what people are talking about when they say, I don't have a very good memory. It's because encoding failure happens a lot. Um, and when you're talking about long-term memory, uh, you know, think about that tool metaphor. You know, you place a tool on your workbench and then you move it to long-term storage of your toolbox but if you don't intentionally keep that toolbox within reach, it becomes difficult to access, right? It, it kind of fades into the oblivion of your mental attic or mental basement, whatever you prefer. And this is encoding failure. And yeah, again, there's, there's two kinds. Um, one is storage decay. This is when you begin encoding to long-term memory, but never complete the process. You know, it doesn't become conditioned or innate or automatic. And so either you fail to continually access the information and it fades away, or, you know, you never fully solidified it in the first place. Um, that, by the way, is called extinction. Um, so when you place information in the new environment, but you don't nurture it or adapt to it, uh, your memory kind of atrophies, storage decay. The other kind of encoding failure is called interference. And this is when information gets in the way of what you're trying to encode. So maybe you're distracted. Well, that's interference. Maybe you didn't learn the information correctly. That's also a kind of interference. Or maybe you learned conflicting information, and that's causing interference with the long-term memory that you did have. So how do we avoid this? How do we encode long-term memory? 
Again, there's lots of resources that can teach specific techniques that can nurture all these processes. But I want to give you the root principles and behaviors that are necessary to encode. And once you have these, you can transpose them to whatever process works for you. So I'm not giving you the recipe here. I want to give you the culinary techniques that will set you up to cook and code whatever you want. And there's seven. There's seven methods. Motivation, emotion, location and association, undisturbed processing, patterns and meeting, conditioning to familiarity, and incarnational learning. So let's start with motivation. Motivation is about having intentional priority to keep processing the information, especially if you know time moves on, interference and distractions pop up, you have to have motivation. So you're at a party and someone introduces themselves. They say their name, but then they begin telling you a story or, or talking about their day. And if you want to remember their name, you have to be intentionally motivated to keep the name in your head longer than 30 seconds. Otherwise, you will lose that information when short-term memory expires. If you start processing the next information, you know, from the story they're telling, remember, five to nine chunks, that's all you got, then the name's going to vanish. And there are lots of ways to do this, right? You don't just have to sit there staring into their eyes, repeating their name as they go on talking. That's weird. What you do is you, you know, you could connect their name to the story. And that helps you actually remember both of them there. Uh, what I will often do is I'll repeat their name out loud in some civilly appropriate manner. So they say, hey, you know, their name is Sam. And I'll say, nice to meet you, Sam. And so instead of just saying nice to meet you, I'll include the name. And now I've, I've intentionally put it top of mind. I'm conscious of it. I'm processing it. That's helping that move past short-term memory. And, and generally what you have to do is you have to decide that the information is important, at, at least important enough to keep top of mind past the duration of short-term memory. So visualizing the information, repeating it, using verbal cues. These are all ways of assigning motivation to what you're trying to remember. You're making it a priority. And your motivation leads to focus, and, and your brain goes, oh, this is important. This is also why, like, writing out notes while intaking information helps you remember. It's not that the notes are now like ingrained in your brain or even that you're keeping them for later reference. The intentional act gives your brain permission to view this information as a priority. So memory, it, it kind of all starts with that motivation. That's a key. Another important component or method is the use of emotion. And we talked about this last episode with bringing in that experience to help something get instilled in your bones. But your brain, whether whether you like it or not, your brain is an emotive organism. And the more vivid you can make information, the more ingrained it will be because, you know, while long-term memory involves various parts of the brain working to reconstruct information and activate piles of neurons collaboratively, and this all allows the brain to keep information consistent and active for encoding purposes, what emotion does is that brings a unique component that makes the encoding much more effective. And so whether it's, you know, using images or art or um, physical action, this is all a way of like triggering more parts of your brain to help the process move more smoothly. 
So please allow a moment of nerdery, which is going to go completely against what I'm trying to explain, you know, to help you remember the method of emotion, I should probably use emotion. I'm not, I'm going to completely go beyond that because complex information is harder to encode, especially when it's not paired with emotion. And this is exactly what I'm about to do. So here we go. Encoding primarily takes place in the prefrontal cortex. Okay, that's like the CEO of the mind. And the cerebellum, which is where your motor skills are primarily found. What emotion does is it brings in the amygdala. So think Adam Sandler's water boy, the medulla oblongata. When this happens, a certain amount of arousal gets paired with the information. You're triggering the same part of your brain that deals with fight or flight. And this is why we tend to remember things that have emotional intensity to them. You know, we're using even more of our brain, or this is why art helps create more vivid recall. The art and its ensuing emotions are like a, like a Trojan horse carrying the information to your long-term memory. Remember, rhetoric doesn't change people. Experience does. Any educator or teacher knows that there's the, these various styles of learning. And the more you can pair together, the more effective someone's learning will be. Experience, physical action, storytelling, emotional appeal. These all bring the amygdala into the memory game. This is also why traumatic events become so ingrained in our consciousness. In a side note here, you know, maybe you've experienced this. If you learned information in a particular mood that same mood may trigger the information later. So sometimes there are memories in our long-term storage that come out simply because the feeling is the same. And all of a sudden, you know, those rush into our minds. Well, it's all about emotion. But on to the next one, which is actually kind of similar. Location and associations. Or more technically, this is called the encoding specificity principle. Just like emotion, you may have noticed that you tend to remember events with more clarity when you are in a similar space or atmosphere to when you first experienced the memory. You know, a smell or season or or even lighting can help with recall and trigger the previously encoded information. And this principle does deal more with recall than encoding, but if you can utilize a particular context to help you remember something, When you re-enter that context, this is a technique you can use to encode. You know, essentially, nostalgia is a powerful memory tool. For example, I remember a professor in college giving me the tip to study in the same space where I was going to take a test. Or you see this in sports. Teams will often do a walkthrough. Um, They'll practice at the venue they're going to play the game. Because location acts as an association that becomes congruent with whatever you're trying to learn. And and again, part of this deals with the myelin sheath, but any association works with the the strengthening of neurological coatings. This is why you might crave certain foods during certain seasons or moments. So if you can intentionally learn something in a certain environment or pair information with certain associations, that information will be more easily accessed because it's not only embedded but it's now embedded with other associations that strengthen the connection. The more vivid the environment or association, especially if you can bring emotion along for the ride, the more encoded it will be too. 
So that's number three. The fourth principle or method is called undisturbed processing. And if you've ever heard of the Promodoro technique, uh, then you've heard of this. That's what it is. You have 15 to 30 minutes of specified encoding. And, and you know, that's ideal, ideal based on the limitations of your brain and perspective. But to avoid overloading, you constrain your attention to specific information for that duration of time, and you're more likely to encode it. Um, and really, this is about eliminating interference, right? You're, you're just focused. You're motivated on this specific thing. Um, but then there, there are two parts, right? So you have that undisturbed intake for that specified amount of time, which eliminates interference. But then you also have undisturbed processing. And this is the five-minute break in the Promodoro technique. You take in the information for a specified undisturbed amount of time, but then you stop. You stop the intake, and then you set your attention on the material. You, you almost observe what you've been taking in. And that's the process of putting those tools on the shelf or in your toolbox. After you have a moment or an event, you have to review the information and process it. There's this debriefing before you re-enter the world and that period of rest and attention, it forces you to focus on and observe the information and now you're transitioning that into your memory. It's, it's literally a means of taking all of that information into your hippocampus for storage, huge for long-term memory encoding. So that's number four. The fifth process uh, or method is using patterns and attributing meaning. And, and this is where you start getting into like the trendy techniques you see. You know, if you've ever seen someone memorize a deck of cards, for example, or, or a list of random words, th this is what they're doing, okay? They're pairing a specific piece of information which has no inherent meaning or value. You know, it's just a symbol, it's a card. And they're imbuing it with a connection to something that does have meaning and now they're using the meaning to put the information to a pattern, which they can remember. It sounds complicated, but it's not. Um, so the pattern and the meaning, it becomes this method to create a link, right? And now that triggers what would otherwise be abstract content with something you already have in your head. And that's the important part. And, and that's also the fragility of, of this, this technique is that it's dependent on something that already exists in your memory. So let's say we're memorizing cards, right? You've got the ace of spades uh, and, and the queen of hearts. And you go, okay, ace of spades, that's grandpa's shovel. Ace is, you know, primary uh, person within the lineage. Spade is shovel. And then queen of hearts, uh, well, that's your, that's your childhood home or whatever. I don't know. And then you create the pattern. Childhood home at grandpa's is... Queen of Hearts, Ace of Spades. What you're doing is you're, you're taking new information and replacing it with information already in your long-term memory. A another technique that's sometimes used for this is to create a pattern with information and create links with some sort of like location process you already know. Um, so a lot of people do this by like the walk up to your house. So you park the car, and then the steps you take and the places you go to get into your house. And what you do is now the abstract information you have, whether you're studying for a test or 
uh, you're trying to remember something, you, you pair it with those images and that process that you already have, and you're more likely to remember it. So, you know, if we were to do this with these techniques, using a walk up to a house, getting out of the car is emotion. Um, and then walking past the trash can, that's the location and association. So you go through this process, which is, it has the motivation in it. It has the intentionality in it. You're, you're drawing these connections and meanings. And now you're more likely to remember that. But you can also kind of sense where this would be difficult to, to keep going. And uh, one, one of the problems that you see with this technique is what happens if you forget the link. And now you're sitting there going like walking past the trash can. Wait, what was that? I don't remember. Why did I compare walking past a trash can with something? So it's really fragile in that way. Um, but a more practical way this can happen is go back to somebody introducing themselves, right? And they tell you their name is Sam. So you repeat the name. That's helpful. But you could also attach meaning to their name by using another connection that you have, you know, or you, you know somebody else named Sam, and so you now you draw that connection to the person that you just met. Or, you know, uh, maybe the person is a bit fantastical of a character, and, and you go, oh, like Sam Gamgee of Lord of the Rings. Now you have a link to help recall the name because you encoded it by attributing meaning. You also won't be able to get that link out of your head, so be careful. Um, but remember, you can only take in so many chunks of information at a time. So the patterns and meeting, what that does is it condenses the pieces of information into larger chunks, allows you to create a map, and you're pairing unfamiliar information with previously known. But you got to keep in mind, this can be unreliable because now you have to encode the link as well. So a person who memorizes a deck of cards or a list of words in one moment probably doesn't remember that same configuration like a week later. The more abstract or disconnected the pattern, the less likely you are, you are to fully encode the information long-term unless you also encode the pattern. So I could say the encoding principles are like walking up to my house and that could help, but you have to now encode that part too. So it adds an extra step. The next method is called conditioning to familiarity. And this is basically just repetition over time, continuous exposure. It's, it's the most difficult, it's the most time-consuming, and it's the least meaningful option. But it encodes information the best. This is almost void of failure because you're constantly elongating that 30-second interval of short-term memory. And what, what's key here is the consistency. So, you know, if, if you compare this with other principles, then it's going to be easier, like patterns and meeting, for example. That's going to help. But if you see the same person every day for a month, their name starts getting associated with their presence and that consistency, that's what's really allowing this to become stored permanently in your brain. Essentially, the external environment's gonna play a role over time in what you remember. What has your attention consistently, that's gonna grow. Familiarity breeds memory. And despite all the techniques and principles, the infrastructure surrounding your life is a more powerful dictator of what will be taken into your memory than anything else. And remember extinction. If you don't keep reintroducing the information, it will go away. So if you're constantly around the information, 
it's probably going to stay there. But there's also the problem here of conditioning. And, and there's something called behavior modification in the law of effect, which is based on classical conditioning. But it's that you're likely to repeat behavior or internalize information that has positive effects, and you're likely to avoid that which has negative effects. So the more positive effects associated with the memory of the information, the more likely you are to keep it around. And the more you keep it around, the more conditioned it will become. The more conditioned it is, the more it becomes internal. And this is called acquisition. External environment leads to internal development. You want to remember things? Keep them around. That's how this one works. And finally, we're almost there, I promise. Incarnational learning. And this is what is essential to the whole muscle memory thing from last episode. For ideation to become execution, for us to change behavior and remember stuff, the most practical way to do this is by physically, tangibly doing something with the information. Experience. Somehow you have to move the information from your head to your hands. And this creates meaning, this creates emotional connections, this creates tactile associations, and it does it all at once. But having a, a ritual or, or practicing the thing you are learning about accomplishes a lot of the encoding concepts all at one time. Motivation, creating an undisturbed intentional processing, conditioning the behavior, all of that happens with this. It also uses the full extent of your brain. It creates links and meaningful patterns and Location associations, it gives practical, practical application of, you know, embodying the intake. It's really the best way to memorize something, is to do something with it. So, that's how you remember stuff, and it's also how you forget stuff. Now, a quick word for those of you who go, but I don't have a good memory. What that primarily comes down to is the lack of motivation which isn't, it's not an insult, but not completely paying attention to those small details that will build up and push you past short-term memory, but also a lack of conditioning, a lack of consistency with it. The people who have really good memories is they got the motivation and they probably got the consistency. And there's certainly some brain power stuff behind that, but anyone can choose to have a good memory. It really comes down to choosing those encoding processes and taking them seriously. And really, if you don't know the encoding methods and how they work, and if you don't know what's going on in your brain with sensory and short-term and long-term and all this information, well then yeah, you're leaving your memory up to chance. It's probably not going to be that good. But you can choose to be good at this, and you can choose to make it happen more effectively. Now, we still need to take on this issue of memory's distance from reality. That's the bad news in all of this. Yeah, you can utilize all of these principles and knowledge to get better at learning and remembering, but the memory still has a glaring problem. So that's what we're going to look at next time. If you can help me out with sharing or subscribing, or if you want to send a tip or donation, you have my gratitude. If you want to continue the conversation or have questions or ideas, seriously, feel free to contact me at my website as well. But for now, may you enjoy the memory game. And may the art of remembering be easier for you in the days to come. See you next time.